0: So if you have a copy of his word and you want to join me in Jeremiah chapter 29, the 29th chapter of the prophecy of Jeremiah, if you're not quite sure how to find it, or perhaps maybe you didn't bring a Bible with you, well, we've got a lot of those around and available. Just take one and let that be our gift to you, but you can also follow along on the screens while you're turning. Let me remind you of one other very important thing as we anticipate this first weekend, beginning tonight at five o'clock, Covenant Women, you will meet. Uh, A wonderful dinner is being prepared for you by the Covenant Men. Uh, It is complimentary as well as the child care, and you will continue your series, God of Covenant, as Jen Wilkin leads you through a phenomenal study of the patriarchal period of Scripture from Genesis 12 to 50. And then tomorrow night, men, I would love to see every single one of you at 7 o'clock in our great room. Also, there is a meal included. Uh, And along with that, the continuation of a series in courage that is led by Dr. Dennis Rainey. So we look forward to that, Uh, look forward to seeing you there. I just want to tell you, as I begin this morning, we're in the last week now of a series that will conclude, obviously today, entitled People of Justice. My heart has been incredibly warmed By the way, so many of you have responded to this series, but there was a particular moment last Sunday. How many of you were here and and heard Mike Crawford last week and were just really blessed by God to hear him speak last week? Yeah, it it was just an amazing, amazing time. But there was one moment that this pastor will never forget. In fact, I got to spend about three days in Dallas, Texas this past week with a number of other pastors from around the nation uh, dealing with some internationally related issues. And and as usually is the case when you're around other pastors around the country and maybe they haven't been to a place like the panhandle of West Virginia or the tri-state area where we live. And so they'll ask a question that sounds something like this. Tell me about your church. And the one moment that I had to talk about last week was this moment in which Mike mentioned that in the midst of all of the pressures that he was going to be under, there may be some times that he might feel the need to escape. And he looked at you and said, your pastor has told me that you guys would give me refuge out here. And my heart's never been more warmed than when I heard an explosive round of applause for that. Uh, and it told me something that, that I, it answered a question that I'd been asking God for several weeks. Lord, are they going to get this? It was almost as if in that moment of applause, the Lord says, yeah, they get it. Do you? Is it really? Do you really get this? And I just want to tell you how incredibly grateful I am uh, that you have that kind of heart. And today, as we finish out this series, I want to give you an opportunity to actually put that heart into work. See, there may come a point at at some uh, later measure in the future where Mike needs some refuge that that moment may not come as well but I can tell you there is a moment that is most assuredly coming where you and I can put that heart to work it is going to get colder isn't it yeah and I know you don't like that any more than I do most of you at least let me tell you who really doesn't like that it is our neighbors uh, and those who are fellow members of this community who have no roof under which they're guaranteed to be able to lay their head down at night and so our homeless neighbors are in need of help And uh, today's emphasis is on the cold weather shelter. So as you go out into the foyer, our own Brenda Newhouse will be out there uh, ready to answer any questions that you have. We partner with multiple other churches in in the the months beginning in January, running all the way through March. And at least for two weeks, you'll have the opportunity to to serve them, uh, to serve them dinner, to serve them breakfast, to talk with them, to learn from them, because there's much we can learn from our neighbors who are in that situation. And also to share your faith Uh, and to just be a friend to them. And so your opportunity to do that, again, Mike may or may not need our help, but we've got some neighbors right here within the shadow of most of our homes, and they are going to need that help. And your opportunity is right through those doors. So let me just encourage you to talk to Brenda this afternoon. Um, We're again in the final week of this series, and we're finishing up. We've been talking about this issue of justice. What does it look like for the body of Christ to advocate for the vulnerable, for the disenfranchised, for people in society that most other people, frankly, including the church, have just forgotten about. And so I want to conclude this morning trying to answer this question. What does that look like? Because some of you may have some questions about, what does it look like for the church corporately to do this? Pastor, are we just going to add a lot of other burdensome things to our already busy schedule? No. No. No, we're going to actually infuse a lot of things we already do with this idea of justice. Are we adding anything? No, probably not. Pastor, are you, I mean, you've, you've touched on some political issues as well. Are we going to be picketing in Washington? No, no. We're going to do something better than that. This is not as complicated as you think it might be. And this is not, it's hard to do, but it's not hard to understand. And my hope is that the prophet will help us to see that this morning. I'll tell you, there's a lot of different places, honestly, that I could go to, just about anywhere, as a matter of fact, in the prophets that I could go to that would demonstrate the point that I'm trying to get across in this very last week. But this passage, the 29th chapter of Jeremiah, has the most colorful history behind it. And so I want to begin by setting that context for you before we even really get into the text and describe a little bit of what's going on in this passage. But to do that, we've got to go back about 350 years to the end of the reign of Solomon. I know we've got a lot of new folks around the covenant family, but how many of you were with us a couple of years ago when we moved through the book of Ecclesiastes together? Can I see your hand? All right, look around at people whose hands are up, and if you're new here, go to them, ask them about the series. I think you can still download it from our website uh, and listen to it. Uh, we, we just had some incredibly encouraging times looking at that, some depressing times as well, because Ecclesiastes contains essentially the last words of a really old man who's looking back on his life, and he recognizes that most of his life was a waste, He's not been faithful to the Lord through most of his reign, and he's reaping the consequences for that. And so Ecclesiastes, it can be a depressing book for precisely that reason. Solomon's looking back at his life, and he just doesn't see a lot. In fact, what he sees coming shortly after his own death is the breakup of the very kingdom that he tried to hold together through his sons Jeroboam and Rehoboam. They will soon, not long after he expires, split that kingdom into Israel in the north and, and Judah in the south. And and basically for the next 350 years, the next three and a half centuries, God's people, though he has called them to be unified, are going to essentially live with their own self-imposed 38th parallel. They're going to war with each other. Occasionally there's going to be some partnerships where they go to war with other people. But most of the kings throughout both empires, from Solomon all the way to the dissolution of both those empires, were essentially wicked kings. They struck alliances with foreign nations in contrast to what God had told them to do. They facilitated a lot of evil. They set up high places for worship of the other gods. They marginalized God's true prophets and set up their own religious advisory councils with false prophets who would tell them what they wanted to hear. And as is usually the case with leaders like this, when you have, number one, a succession of wicked leaders, they're not doing what they do for the good of the kingdom, they're doing it for their own self-aggrandizement. They're doing it for the build kind of their own kingdom. And then secondly, none of them last very long, and so they're not staying in place very long. When you take those two things and you put them together, the natural consequence, whether it's for a church or a, an organization, uh, a corporation here in the States, or in this case, an entire kingdom, it will begin to dissolve. It will begin to waste away. And that's what we begin to see as these respective kingdoms begin to decline. The north goes the fastest. By 722 BC, the Assyrians have come in and they've invaded and they're overtaking. And for the next 135 years, Judah will await a similar fate. But right in the midst of that period of time, a prophet is born. His name is Jeremiah. He begins his ministry somewhere in the 620s, which would mean that he began preaching to his own people somewhere between his 12th and his 13th birthday. So I want you to think about that for a minute, because he's going to continue doing that for the next 40 years. So imagine that you have that kind of a job. The first day that you ever clock in, you're not even shaving, and the last day that you clock out, AARP sending you stuff in the mail, all right? And that's all you do for 40 years, and you get to the end of that 40 years, and you look back on your life, and what you discover is that I haven't accomplished a whole lot. It doesn't feel like I've leveraged the energy and the time and the money and the resources that God has given me for good purposes because things just haven't gotten any better. In fact, they've gotten far worse. In fact, if you want to understand the fullness of what's going on inside Jeremiah's heart, it may interest you to read the book of Lamentations sometime throughout this week. Do not read it if you're depressed. It will just make it worse. Uh, But there you have the heart of this man who feels as though his entire life has been wasted. What have I done with with all of this? And so Jeremiah 29 is spoken by that man. And it's addressed to the very last king in Judah. His name is Zedekiah. Now, the the interesting thing about Zedekiah is he's he's not appointed by God's people. No prophet of God anointed him with oil and made him king. God certainly did not. Uh, call him or anoint him or approve of him in any sense as king. He was placed in this position as a puppet ruler by the Babylonian leader Nebuchadnezzar. And he was was put in that position so that Nebuchadnezzar could have the rights at any point that he wanted to to come in and raid their stuff or take their people and enslave them or do whatever. Over 10 years, that ensued until 587 BC when finally Nebuchadnezzar had grown tired and weary of Zedekiah himself. And one of the last things we read about Zedekiah is that he is forced to watch his two sons put to death as a way of ensuring the end of his progeny and their reign on the throne of Israel. And immediately after that, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylonian authorities will put Zedekiah's own eyes out. So this is the last thing he sees. And then he is drugged, along with a number of other slaves, back to Babylon with a completely destroyed Jerusalem and a leveled temple behind them. These are dark, dark days for Israel. And so meanwhile, back in Babylon, you have these Jewish slaves that have been there, or been gathered and sort of collected, if you will, alongside the Euphrates and the Tigris rivers. And they've been there for over a period of 10 years and they continue to grow and they're looking for some kind of hope. What do we do? And so there's a man who steps up to try to give them that hope, whose name was Hananiah. And in one chapter earlier, we read Hananiah's words. Take a look at these these words from the Lord, these word of the Lord recording the words of Hananiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. He comes with supposedly good news. You're not going to be under this very long. You're going to go back within two years. Now, let me ask you a question. If you were somewhere, moreover, if you were somewhere you really didn't want to be, you wanted to be somewhere else and someone presuming to be God's man comes to you and says you're going to be gone in 2 years. That would affect some major decisions in your life, wouldn't it? It would affect how you affect how you live, wouldn't it? How do I own or do I rent? We got some realtors in front of me right now. I'm told that, that those stats may have changed that if you're going to buy a house, you better be prepared to stay in it at least how long? 2 years. If you're even going to break even between the closing costs and everything else, you better stay in that thinking. So if you're not planning on being here for at least two years, what does that mean? I'm not going to put down roots. What does it mean in terms of your children? If you've got a seven or eight-year-old kid, are you thinking about the other kids in that community and who they might find to be a mate? Probably not, if you're only going to be there two years. And so the word that they hear from Hananiah affects the choices that they're going to make. And it induces into the people of God a couple of different things. Number one, a sense of denial that this really isn't all that bad. It'll get better soon. And secondly, isolation. Since we're not going to be here that long anyway, let's just circle the wagons and kind of do our thing until the Lord frees us in two years the way Hananiah tells us it's going to happen. And into that situation comes the prophet Jeremiah and he will confront that message head on. In fact, he's going to confront it in a way that will coincide with the wider witness of scripture regarding how God's people should relate to the wider world. And the overriding principle we see in all of this is that God's people, no matter where we find ourselves, no matter what we call ourselves, no matter our situation, should never, ever, ever, ever keep the kingdom we serve to ourselves. Never. And that really is the heart of what it means to do justice. To seek the welfare of the city, as Jeremiah is going to teach us. We need to bring the kingdom, just as Jesus would teach his disciples 600 years later, to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And to put feet to those prayers such that everywhere we can examine that his will is not being done on earth, we do whatever we can, we leverage whatever we can to make sure that that's actually happening and we do it for the good of our cities. We do it for the good... Of our communities so we spent the last several weeks looking at the why of social justice what's what's the church's role in this and why should we do that today we're gonna to look at the how and, and let me just encourage you by saying it's probably not what you think it's probably not what you think it's not adding things to the church's agenda it's not going more political than we've been going in the the history of our church, but it does involve some posture changes and perhaps even some life changes that go with that. And so let me me give you three commands that, that emerge out of this prophecy of Jeremiah, beginning with this one. The prophet tells these people and us, live in the times that God has placed you. Live in the times that God has placed you. Look at verse 4. Very, very short introduction to the prophecy, but there's a lot of dynamite just just in this introduction. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all of the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now let me tell you why that statement by itself, Jeremiah could, could have said nothing else, and that statement on its own would have been a double shock to the system of those living in Babylon. Because in the first place, these people had not envisioned themselves being encaptured, being being enslaved by anybody. They didn't picture that at all. In fact, they'd spent the last 350 years watching their respective nations decline and being in denial about it, saying that God would never cause us to ultimately pass from the scene. God is good. God loves us, sort of like a moral, moralistic, therapeutic deism that penetrates a lot of Western churches today that said God is just this great-grandfather in the sky. He always wants you to be happy, always healthy, always wealthy. He'll never take anything away. He'll certainly never punish you. And the Jews had what, in their mind, was an even greater reason for that. We have the temple. So we can worship other gods, we can do what we want, we can cheat on our wives, we can live however we want, and the reason for that is we have the temple. God would never do anything to his temple, forgetting that for 350 years, God had told his people over and over again, I don't live there. And yet, all these years later, we fall for similar things, don't we? So the shock comes when he says, you're in exile, guess what? you are where you didn't think you were going to be. The double shock comes when he says this, not only did I allow you to go into exile, I have sovereignly ordained you to be in exile. This is my will for you. I have a mentor in ministry who in between churches on one occasion was was he was got a job as a courier. Now, this is in the early 1980s, so he was making $5.50 an hour, and he found himself one day in a dumpster because his boss said, we can't get it to dump, and you're the low guy, the junior on the totem pole, and we got to get you. So he was inside this dumpster with the roaches and the stink bugs or whatever's down in there trying to get all this cardboard out. And he he was just complaining and griping. And Lord, I've got a master's degree. And Father, I thought you'd use me for better stuff than this. And he said, I heard God speak more loudly than has ever spoken to me. And he said to me, son, sometimes my will is for you to be in a dumpster. Sometimes my will is for you to be somewhere you'd rather not be. And with regard to the exiles, that's exactly what God said. This is my will for you that you be here. And over the next two generations, roughly 70 years, God will further open the minds and the hearts of his people in that foreign land. And he's going to teach them two things. Number one, I'm everywhere. I don't need a temple. Let me prove it to you. I'll let the Babylonians knock it down. And I will still be God. The second thing he learns is this. I didn't just lead you here. I'm with you here. I'm with you in those situations that you'd rather not be in. I'm with you in those times that you would not prefer. I'm with you, and I have sovereignly ordained this moment. If I may invoke a, a metaphor from my favorite sport, Jeremiah is saying, this, your, your quarterback didn't get sacked because God missed a block. That's not what happened here. The Lord has intricately designed this moment in history for you, and you need to understand that he is with you. Over the next 70 years, we, we read... That's actually what happened, that the emergence of something called the synagogue would originate from that intersection between the Tigris and the Euphrates River and that God's people, Israel, would discover that without the temple, without the sacrificial system, without all those accoutrements of of modern worship as they understood it, that they would encounter and develop a level of intimacy with God there in the desert that they had never encountered anywhere else. This is what God wanted them to see. This is the God, and the theme of that sovereign providence over all of history and all the affairs of men is defined for us elsewhere. It's not just in Jeremiah. Look at the the book of Acts in chapter 17. Paul is speaking there to the philosophers on Mars Hill, and he says this, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him. You get that? Where is God? In the temple? No. Where is God? In some sort of accoutrement? In some kind of sacrifice? In some kind of cultic activity? No. Where is God? It is in him that we live and move and have our being. Even as some of your own poets have said, God is with you here. He has set the determination. God's decision was that you and I would be alive at this moment in 2019 in the tri-state area. That was God's decision. God has sovereignly declared that. God has brought all of that to pass. And God simultaneously promises us this. Wherever you find yourself today, even if it's somewhere you'd rather not be, I am with you. I'm with you. And so you need to live in the times that I have placed you in your current surroundings might be less than ideal you know there's not a soul in here me included that couldn't if we wanted to come up with a laundry list of all the ways our life could be better I could certainly do that I could gripe and complain there'd be about six of you left in here when I got done but I could do that these are all the ways I wish my life could be better and I was uh, so so I got a choice I can either pine for things that used to be that aren't anymore. I can long for something that may or may not be and gripe and complain until it happens or until I die a grumpy old crotchety, well, you know. Or I can live in the moment that God has assigned me. I can believe that God is with me even right now. Some of you right now, you you hate your job. Your family is an absolute wreck. And your temptation is to either... Try to pine for something you used to have or to long for something that may or may not ever come in your life. And I'm telling you, brother, sister, you, if you keep doing that crap, are going to miss what God has right now, right in front of you. You need to grab onto that and live in this time. Seize that moment because the same God who spoke through Jeremiah, he speaks today and he would say to you, he would say to me, evil, no doubt has probably contributed to some of the things that make you sad. Your own foolish decisions, frankly, have probably not helped you very much. But ultimately, I am the one who has brought you here. That's the thing. That's the attitude we've got to get, because i got to be honest with you. Can we just be honest with each other? You can't love co-workers. You can't love dysfunctional family members and crazy neighbors unless you actually believe this. You can't do it. you got to realize that God has placed you right here, right now, for that same reason. What, what, what does that mean for us, church, as a body? Let's think about this for a minute. Think about where we are. Think about where we're not. I mean, if we had to choose, I'm sure all of us would prefer living in a place where we are not number one in the nation in opioid addiction. I, I'm certain of that. But yet here we are. So what are we going to credit that to? Are we simply going to say that, you know, well, it's coincidence or it's bad luck? Or will we believe this God who once brought his own people into a foreign land and says to them, I brought you here. I have brought you here. God has put us right here, right now. How do we respond to that? You respond by first living in the times that God has placed you in. Secondly, you respond by living with the neighbors that God has given you. Now, that's harder than it sounds, did not it? Some of you just went, okay, I'm checking out right now. Because I've been hoping those people next door will put a for sale sign in their yard for a long, long time. Read with me, beginning in verses 5 and 6. Jeremiah says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. That was so counterintuitive to what they were thinking. And the reason is because, again, they'd been listening to another prophet named Hananiah. Let's look at verse 3 of Jeremiah 28 again. Within two years. I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this palace and carried to Babylon. This is not the first time in history, nor will it be the last, in which God's people are offered an alternative message that sounds a lot better than what God's actually saying. Centuries later, the early church will face a similar situation, and Paul will confront that head-on by telling Timothy the following. Look at these words from 2 Timothy chapter 4. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. And by the way, that word sound is the, the Greek word, from which comes our English word, hygiene. They're not going to endure what's healthy. All right, Put it, put it into a, a, your mama's dinner table metaphor. They're not going to eat their vegetables. They're going to go to church and they're going to want nothing but dessert and sugar and everything else. And there, and there will be people who will feed them nothing but cheesecake while they die of diabetes. That's what's going to happen. But see, this. why does Paul say this? Why is he so confident that this is coming? I'm convinced that at least part of that reason is because he had seen it before. Every generation has their false teachers. And in those moments, God's people have to make a decision. Who are we going to believe? Who are we going to follow? And we're going to make a choice in that matter between what we want to hear and what God is actually saying to us that is the actual life-giving message. Hananiah says, you won't be here long. Listen to what Jeremiah says. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are not among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie. Like that's offensive. You just called another prophet a liar. Well, is he? that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. So he hits this right in the face. I didn't send them. So one prophet scratches itching ears. Another one tells the truth. And the truth is this. Build houses and plant gardens. Now think about what that sounds like. When Hananiah says two years, you're not going to buy a house in two years. You're not going to plant a garden if you're only going to be there two years. You're certainly not going to think about who your child is going to end up with if they're still, say, in elementary or even middle school, if you're only going to be there two years. So when Jeremiah comes along and he says, build houses and plant gardens, what's he saying? You're going to be here a while. So get a job and get a mortgage. Buy, don't rent. This is where I've put you and you're going to be here for a long, long time. You may want to get out of Dodge, but God has put you in Dodge. And Dodge is where you're going to stay. Jeremiah will go on and actually tell them exactly how long that is, which is a further shock to them. 70 years. That's a long time, isn't it? I've not even been alive that long, not even close. And so you think about that time period and even in our own day, that's a that's a lifespan, isn't it? Like that's most of your life like you, even with our survival rate. The the average age of death in the United States of America when you when you consider that, Well, if you went to Babylon as an adult, even in the 21st century, you're not coming back. That's what this means. You're like, the life cycle's not that long? No, it's really not. In fact, a U.S. citizen today, on average, will live to be 79.8 years of age. Did you know that? Out of 195 nations from the first world to the third world, all across the world, we are 42nd in lifespan. You're like, 42nd? Really? Like, aren't we the richest, most prosperous? Yeah, but, you know, look at what we do with bacon. I mean, 79.8 years. You know who's number one, just incidentally? The kingdom of Monaco. They live about 10 years longer than us, almost at least. 89.52 years. Now, to give you some encouragement, the next generation is supposed to live longer. My oldest son is 19. His generation is supposed to live to an average of 102 years. That's a long time. Some of the young people are like, oh, dude, rising seas, I, I don't know if I want to live 102 years. All right? well, that's, that's what's in front of you right now. But even with that kind of lifespan, 70 years, that's a long, long time. There just aren't that many who are going to come back. And in, in the first century, I studied and looked and researched and researched, and I could not find any data that would tell me what the average lifespan was in Jeremiah's day. But I did find data for the first century, 600 years of medical advance after Jeremiah. The average lifespan was between 38 and 50 years of age. So when Jeremiah says 70 years, that's his way of saying, you ain't coming back. Get a job, get a mortgage, start thinking about what your children are going to do because they're going to be there too. You're going to be here a long, long time. Take wives. Don't wait to return. Every wedding from this point for the next 70 years is a destination wedding. And that destination is Babylon. Give your sons and daughters in marriage. Have grandchildren. Now, why would he do that? Why would he tell God's people to do that in a foreign land earlier in the, the larger narrative of Scripture? God had actually warned his people not to do that kind of thing. Does he appear to be changing course now? What's he doing Because because this is a pivotal moment in history in which God's people have an opportunity to at least partially fulfill, it won't fully come until Jesus, but to at least partially fulfill God's promise to Abraham. Look at Genesis 12, 3. He says to the first Jew, who was a Gentile before he was a Jew, that's another subject for another day, in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, is saying, when I said that to your father Abraham, I meant it. I meant that you would be a blessing. I meant that. You are going to bless your Babylonian captors by your mere presence. So you need to be present in that situation. You need to increase and not decrease. It's amazing when I hear Christian people who follow a guy who rose from the dead Say to me, and when they're younger, I just don't think I would ever have a child. It's so dangerous. It's such a horrible world to bring a child into. Are you new here? The world has always been a dangerous place for children. Always. Well, you want to take them back to before antibiotics? Is that what do you want to do exactly? It's like we romanticize the recent past. It's like well, we could just get back to the 1950s and you know all the safety that I felt. I, if you're white, I guess. I don't know. I don't want to have a child. It's, so da- it's always been dangerous to have children. But what's been God's command? And no, I'm not anti-birth control. I'm not anti-being wise. I'm not one of those guys. But it is interesting to me, the number of people who call themselves followers of Jesus who understand the, the mandate of be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And, and, and you don't do it out of fear? Really? You don't do it out of fear. Increase your presence. That mandate, by the way, has not changed. Look at Paul's words in 1 Timothy 2.2. As he's giving instruction that's to be passed on to the church, he says this, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see how Paul inextricably links living the way you're supposed to and doing justly and loving mercy and walking humbly with your God, all those terms in the Old Testament we've extrapolated over the last several weeks, how he inextricably ties that to the world coming to know Jesus. God wants everybody to come to the knowledge of the truth. You need to live a quiet and godly life and be dignified in order for this to happen. This is how it gets done. We love to overcomplicate things, don't we? Especially in the Western church. The Western church can overcomplicate a two-car parade. What new philosophy do we need? What kind of new strategy? It's always about being more creative. We got a lot of creatives here. I'm not opposed to creativity, but creativity will not advance the gospel, people. Faithfulness to God is what advances the gospel. How do we reach that group? How do we understand this? And how do we do it? Those things are not completely illegitimate, but brothers and sisters, with all of our innovation and programs and money, every reliable statistic on the church in America still tells us we can't even hold on to our own children. And the quote unquote growing churches in North America, 98% of them are not making disciples. They're just sucking people out from other churches. We're not being faithful, even if we look faithful. And so what's our call here? To increase our presence. So the plan is simple. Live among people who are not like you. Live among people who don't believe as you do. Walk in close relationship with them. Work hard. Live a quiet and godly life. Raise your children to do the same. Marry them off to other kids whose parents have raised them to live in that way. The mere presence of that dynamic among our neighbors makes us different. And it makes them want to be different. We, brothers and sisters of Covenant, do not need a new, fresh, creative strategy. And you, my brother, my sister, do not need a new neighborhood to simply do what God has called you to do. Live in the times where God has placed you among the neighbors He has given you. But listen really carefully to this last point, because if you don't get this last thing these other things aren't going to make a difference. Because there's a posture, there's a heart that you have to have in order for this to happen. Love with the gospel that God has instilled in you. Love with the gospel that God has instilled in you. In fact, fact, this is going to make a great transition into our next series. We're going to spend the next weeks up until Christmas talking about our responsibility to verbally talk about the gospel with our friends and our neighbors who are yet to know Jesus. You're going to be trained thoroughly in all of our small groups in how this should work and how to transition conversations into gospel conversations so that evangelism is actually evangelism. You're actually engaging people who do not know Jesus. You're not giving a fruit basket to your best friend and calling it missions. How do we do this? Look at verse 7. Because that verbal witness I'm going to talk about over the next few weeks, they're going to call your bluff in about two seconds. If you don't do, and I don't do what the prophet says here, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your own. You see what happened? God's people have become so isolationist, so living in the Christian, you know, if, the, if if Israel had been living in the 21st century, they'd have had their Christian t-shirts and their Christian schools and their silly B-rated Christian movies. Y'all ain't laughing because y'all watch some of that stuff, don't you? Yeah. They were in the bubble. I'm telling you, in the bubble. And so what does God do? He takes them out. He puts them in a foreign land, and he says, you've been disobedient to me because my plan for Abraham was to bless the nations, not for you to waste all that blessing in your own consumerism. And so I'm going to put you in the middle of a place that is foreign among people who are your captors, and I'm going to tie your future welfare to theirs, because i mean for you to do what I told you to do. I mean for you to seek their welfare as well. Think about that for a minute. I want you to seek the welfare of your captors, people that have enslaved you. And then I want you to pray to Yahweh, the one and only true and living God, on behalf of a place that has wholly rejected Him in view of other gods. Do it on behalf of people who will not too far from this moment throw one of your own to the lions and three more into the fiery furnace, you pray for them. You pray for their welfare. You seek the best for them. And you work for the betterment of that society where I have placed you. Now, when when Jeremiah says that, he is invoking the spirit of Jesus. How do I know that? Well, we only need to look at the words of Jesus. Look at Matthew 5, 44. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why would he say something like that? Because, because I put you here. Your welfare is now tied inextricably to theirs. We need a posture check when it comes to our interaction with with wider culture. We're not always going to agree with culture, and I understand that. Listen, I'm not asleep at the wheel. I, I've watched some of the primary debates with some of the presidential candidates, with some. I don't watch a lot of it because I don't want to kill that many brain cells. But I, I've watched some of it. Some of you, you feel like we're under some kind of big threat. I guess, look, I, I get that there are people that would like to do what they can to try to see the church as it exists to be no more. Annoying. I understand that. And I'm not denying that that time may not come. And if it does, the posture your pastor will be. I'll be standing up here and I will tell you, it's time to do civil disobedience because we will obey God rather than men, okay? Uh, So I don't want you to think that I'm asleep at the wheel or that I don't understand that. What I do want you to understand is not every posture toward culture needs to be an adversarial posture. Most of the way we interact with the wider culture needs to not be adversarial. Let me give you one real up-close-and-personal example of, that, that would apply to our own family. The Raines, for many, many years, have been a homeschool family. Uh, we did that many years ago for reasons I'm not even going to get into because you got to eat lunch. So I'm not going to bore you with all that. I'll just tell you that it, it just became our conviction, based on having our kids in the public school system for a long time, that they would be best served at home. And and so that's what we've done. We have a homeschool co-op that meets here on Tuesday all day. We're all about that. We want parents to be able to make that decision one way or the other. But here's the question you need to ask yourself if you're like me and you're a a homeschool dad. Is it my responsibility under the lordship of Jesus to seek the welfare and to advocate with every ounce of my being for the welfare of the public school systems in Jefferson and Berkeley and Washington and Loudon and Frederick and the other Frederick? counties and let me let me just tell you that is not a rhetorical question and it only has one right answer yes yes you really think that whatever we whatever convictions we follow that jesus is okay with me completely ignoring tens of thousands of children underpaid teachers under-resourced classrooms horrible sometimes dilapidated buildings in which they have to teach You think you're okay standing in front of Jesus one day? When God has put us here in this moment and said to us with the the very spirit of Jesus, the same thing Jeremiah said to those exiles, you seek the welfare of that place where I put you. You seek the best for it. You advocate for the best of it. And I know what some people are saying. Well, it's pagan. It's a pagan system. You, You... Engage your brain for just a minute here. First of all, you better be careful saying stuff like that because you are undoubtedly in arm's length of a public school teacher that's right in front of me right now who is filled with the Holy Spirit of God who would greatly disagree with your assessment and they would know better than you because they work there. Secondly, even if you're right and you're not, but even if you were, When people talk to me about a pagan school system, you know the first thing I think about? You ready for this? First person I think about, Moses. Moses, what do you think the Egyptian system of pedagogy was like? I'm betting the farm it did not have even monotheism at its philosophical base, and it produced freaking Moses. Don't be pounding on a system when we've got godly, spirit-filled people right within an arm's length of you who are contributing to that system and seeking its welfare, and who knows, maybe even raising up a Moses. What's our job as the body of believers? Yeah, we've got to follow some convictions for our own household, but ultimately we've got to seek the welfare. I, that, I want teachers compensated fairly. I want facilities well maintained. I want resources that are adequately supplied because my concern is for the entire region. How often do we think about it like that? How often do we think about that in terms of our first responders? You know, the, the Shepherdstown Volunteer Fire Department is called that because there's nobody on a payroll there. There are people there and they dedicate their time and they put their lives at risk and they, you know why they do it? Essentially for the same thing that Jeremiah's talking about here. They're seeking the welfare of their neighbors far more than so many people who sit in church week after week and do nothing. What are we doing to serve? And I don't just mean to say thank you. What about our police officers here in the, the town, here in the county? Did you, did you know that there's actually a small group of people here at Covenant that for one solid year did nothing but pray for Senator Manchin and Senator Capito, one Democrat, one Republican, didn't ask them for anything, didn't complain about anything, just wrote them letters every single month and told them, we're not gonna make any requests of you, we're not gonna leverage anything, but we want you to know, this month we're praying for your health, this month we're praying for your family, your kids, your grandkids if you have them, this month we're praying for wisdom, the very wisdom of Solomon for your leadership because we know that your welfare and ours are tied together. We're supposed to be more than just a fly in the ointment. That's my point. Martin Luther King taught us that occasionally the church has to be a fly in the ointment. I get that. We should do that when God calls us to raise our prophetic voice. But while we should never be less than that, we should be far more than that. And here's the promise now that finally gets us to that one verse that's probably on one of your coffee cups at home that some of you may not have even understood until now. You're not ready to read, let alone understand, Jeremiah 29, 11, until you've been through everything we just went through. All right. Because it's within the context of that command, seek the welfare of the people where I have found you, that we see this expectation. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil. Plans to give you a future and a hope. So he says, this is what you're supposed to do. You seek their welfare, their welfare and your welfare are tied together. I put you here because you were disobedient to me in, in Israel and you worshiped. I mean, you're talking about worshiping gods. how pagan they are. How pagan were you? Why do you think I kicked you out of your own country? I put you here with this expectation. And if you will obey me, it's demonstrative of the fact that you believe me when I say I actually do have good plans for you. I think that's our question too. And it? at the end of the day, it's do we really believe our God? Do we really believe him when he puts us in circumstances that we'd rather not be in, when we have a, a time and a place or, or neighbors that we don't particularly like, when, when there's an area maybe that maybe we'd rather live somewhere else if we could live anywhere else. But God has put us right here, right now, and he has said, if you'll just simply do what I'm asking you to do, I have good plans for you. Plans for a future, not for a hope. Jesus would say it this way, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you. I will take care of all the stuff you're worried about. You worry about your neighbors and I will take care of you. That's what it means to be people of justice. That's what it means. And so everything we've learned is is just, it's crazy and it is so antithetical to the world system that says forget the poor look out for number one us versus them dog eat dog get whatever you can get those are the values of washington dc those are the values of the republican party those are the values of the democratic party if you don't believe it just listen to some of the god-awful rhetoric coming out of both sides these days for most not all thankfully but for a lot of pro athletes this is the This is the posture. For a lot of chief executive officers, this is the posture. Have you ever really seen an ad for employment on Wall Street that listed as one of the qualifications someone lowly and humble of heart? I've never seen that. God says, my plans for you are a hopeful future, but you've got to follow one path in order to get there. It is a path of justice for the poor, seeking the welfare of others. And your welfare as a people is tied to. To whether you will do justice and love mercy and walk in humility before your God. And so let's bow together and ask God for the capacity to be that kind of people. Amen. Would you bow with me? Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your greatness and your goodness. We thank you that the heart of what it means for us to be people of justice is the fact that we were vulnerable, that we were in our sin that we had a wrath coming that we deserved, and yet you looked on us with compassion. You didn't lecture us about the decisions we should have made. You wrapped yourself in human flesh, you came, you satisfied the justice of God, and you gave grace. Lord, may we be that kind of people who will seek out the vulnerable, the kind of people who will say to those in our society that nobody else wants, that other people have ignored, you are welcome. May we do what our first-century ancestors did. May we invite them to our table. May they eat our food and drink our wine. May we take, um, may we take pleasure in serving them, our neighbors. And in all of this, may you be honored and glorified. And may those that you long to come and know of Jesus see, not just hear, but see, incarnated the very message. That over the next several weeks we're going to be challenging each other to spread As far and wide as we can And I ask these things in the name of Jesus Amen Hi everybody, Pastor Joel here And I am so glad you stopped by I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we Join us any Sunday morning at nine o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.